Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Hello everyone, welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. Great to be back with you. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Liz Murphy. Hello Mim. Hello everyone. Hi Liz, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm very good. Keen to talk to people about what they're about to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is a really exciting episode. We had a fantastic conversation with a colleague of ours, Jo McElveen, someone we both love working with. I'm a big fan of her work. Uh, Jo's a great, great human being and a great social worker, bereavement social worker. And Jo is someone we've worked a lot with around developing teaching and learning resources Uh, in the social work and healthcare space, particularly around end-of-life care. She is my sensei when it comes to articulating why she does what she does in the bereavement space. And what I loved about this conversation, Mim, was my reflecting on my own work in, you know, working in hospitals and community and palliative care, talking about cases that I've worked on, and then having Jo talk about the frameworks, the theory, the... She was able to language it in a way that I truly valued. You know, her her listing the different theorists that that, uh, have informed our work. And I feel like... You know, so much of what we do in this space, we've talked about this, is so hidden. Yeah. So many people don't know what social workers do in this space. And I think Joe's one of those social workers that really assists our social workers to name what we do and to talk about it in a way that it's based in evidence. It's based in good, sound research and practice. Yeah, I think that's really true. We get a lot of social work students particularly uh, emailing us or messaging us, Liz, uh, asking for really what does bereavement support look like in practice, right? And how do we weave theory and frameworks into our practice in that space, yeah? And it is definitely one of the topics that's more popular with our listeners and definitely more popular with us because, of course, you and I both come from that clinical background, right? So, uh, so we love to have those conversations. But what Joe does, I think you're right, is just give that really special input around this is the phenomenon and this is how we understand it. And so I think that's con- this is going to be a companion piece episode, right? There's a l- number of episodes we've done where social workers have told stories about practice in the end of life space or bereavement space. And this is a companion episode to that that helps really guide how we think and approach our work here. And I think the other thing that Joe does is actually give some really good tips around how to be in this space. And so I think it's a great summary piece because some of the things that she talks about we've heard in previous episodes, but this one episode 
encapsulates many of those themes that we've seen through, I reckon, at least eight maybe even 10 episodes that we've done. I would agree with you on that one. So this is a conversation we really enjoyed having. We hope you all enjoy listening to it and we'll be back with you towards the end of the uh, conversation. Let's do it. I wonder, Joe and Liz, whether I could ask you to introduce yourselves and let us know a little bit about uh, your career to date. So Jo, do you want to start? Hello everyone, I'm Jo McElveen, like Mim said. Um, I'm a grief and bereavement social worker with South East Sydney Local Health District. I've been a social worker for nearly 20 years now, which is an extraordinary amount of time for me. Um, but I still love my work and I'm really passionate about all things end of life and bereavement. Over to you Liz. Thanks Jo. Hello everyone, I'm Liz Murphy and currently I am working as a social work educator for the Illawarra and Shoalhaven local health district. Similarly to Jo, I feel very passionate about loss and grief. I've worked in health, I've worked as a social worker for 36 years, um, predominantly in health in a variety of positions, whether it be in hospital or community, and I've been an educator. And I always come back to loss and grief as being a particular area of passion. And no matter where I've worked, I've used that lens to, I guess, to work with the, with the people and the families that um, I provide service to. I love that. So I want to start by asking both of you, uh, we're going to talk about the bereavement setting as a context for social work today. And I think that can be a bit tricky for students to get their heads around thinking about working in that space in the future. I want to ask both of you, what is it that you think that social work brings to the bereavement space? So for me, um, Mim, are you talking specifically about hospital environment or home environment or all of the above? Let's talk about all of the above, Joe, because you're absolutely right. It crosses context, doesn't it? That's right. And I guess for me, bereavement or living with loss um, starts when a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness or there's some life changes that mean that their function's declining. Um, so at that point, families and the person are living with loss and they're moving through that trajectory of their illness to a point at the end, which is bereavement. So this all encompasses a, a positionality of say palliative care. Um, and I guess at home, this means a lot of different things as a carer of, of someone who's, who's slowly deteriorating in front of your eyes. That's a really hard reality to come to terms with seeing your partner of 60 years start to lose their physical function or their cognitive function or a combination of both. It's really hard to see them become more frail and deteriorate in front of your eyes and you're living constantly with that loss, um, which in the research is, is coming out as something that is much more prevalent considering um, how we age and die now, as opposed to how we did 30, 40 years ago. So that's one sort of aspect to consider. Um, and our grief reactions as, along that trajectory can be very similar to our grief reactions when someone dies and when we experience the bereavement of, of that loved person. In the hospital setting, social workers have a really unique and um, 
opportunistic role to do some beautiful therapeutic intervention now and more and more we are being asked to do that. When I started in social work 20 years ago, social workers weren't often involved in end-of-life care, but increasingly that role is being built and as people are dying in hospitals, over 50% of people die in hospitals, um, families and patients are wanting that psychosocial intervention and that therapeutic support and also what we're seeing as, as palliative care and specialised palliative care have risen as as unique profession within itself, um, the acute hospital setting is uh, adopting some of the holistic psychosocial care that palliative care have in place at the specialised units and um, this means that social work really get to spend time with families and connect with families and provide those points around keepsakes and continuing bonds, which is really important. Um, we know it was really important when people are on that bereavement journey that they feel connected and supported around someone's death. So just building on what you've said, Joe, I think why social workers are, are, are perfect for the death work or even the loss work is that we see it as a natural response to just being human. Um, beyond the hospital setting, we see that just the fact that you're born here, you're going to experience loss. Um, so when I was working in community, when I was working with, say, for instance, families affected by domestic violence, I also brought that loss lens to, to that work as well. So it's much broader than um, some of the losses that we might see in the medical setting. But back to that medical setting just Briefly, I think we are in some regards countercultural to the medical setting. We know that loss occurs and we're, we're comfortable in that space, whereas I think for some of the professions, it's hard. It's a, it's a hard space to work in. For some of the professions, it's seen as a failure of perhaps medicine that this person is in fact not going to survive whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I think we have been working in this space for a lot longer than what we've been acknowledged for. I think we've been doing a lot of magic behind the curtain stuff for a long time because I know that it's been, you know, when I think about uh, the 80s and working with um, babies who died as a result of stillbirth, we were doing that work. We just weren't actually... Um, doing it as publicly as what we can now. We had to fight really hard to be able to get those babies in the arms of their parents and be able to um, take photos and take keepsakes. I think we have been doing this stuff. It's only now that it's valued a lot more and I think social work are also seen as valuable because we are doing that. We don't back away from it. And what I'm really pleased about, Mim, is that you're bringing loss and grief back into the undergraduates' um, studies because many of the students that we've been having for, I would say, for at least one decade, haven't been doing much in the area of loss and grief, whereas prior to that, in the 90s, it was a big part of the curriculum. I ran a subject that was 16 weeks long, and we actually looked at ritual, we looked at um, cultural impact on loss and grief, and and I, I'm really pleased that you're um, engaging with our undergraduates again in this space, because you work in health, this is the area that, you know, to be able to look at it through contemporary grief um, models is so important. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's definitely a space here for social work students to be trained around some of those therapeutic ways that you're talking about. And I guess when we talk about therapeutic ways, I'm wondering whether we're talking about our general social work skills or whether we're talking about something that's much more specialised. And I know that the conversations we have with students through their training is really around the application of their general skills. I want to ask both of you, what is the role of the general social work skill base as opposed to the more specialised therapeutic bereavement space? Yeah, I think, Mim, for me, um, I didn't have the language around what I was doing when I was providing a, you know, a generalist social work service. I do now, which is great, and that's part of that sort of lifelong learning that social work throws at us. So, in the, and for me, the term is around companioning and holding space, um, sitting in silence, journeying alongside someone, not leading. Um, Alan Wolfelt's 11 tenets of companioning. And I didn't know that that's what I was doing as a generalist social worker when I was sitting in the rehab ward or when I was um, working in oncology or even ED. I didn't have the language, but I feel like increasingly we're able to um, resource our social workers with that language and what that literally means and how that looks, what that physical holding space looks like. That's really great to be able to do that. And I think, like Liz is absolutely right, I think recently someone told me it's nine out of 33 undergraduate social work courses have a grief and loss component in their, in their teachings, which is fascinating. But in terms of moving towards that more specialised role, understanding grief and bereavement research and theories really has the opportunity to impact on our practice and we, by knowing about the dual process model, by having an understanding of Niemeyer's, um, you know, meaning reconstruction theory, even applying Kubler-Ross at times, um, or uh, Warden's four, four stages of loss, um, having an understanding of that in our practice means that when we're talking to uh, a family member who's saying, I feel so conflicted, I'm sitting here seeing mum dying in front of my eyes and I'm so sad but then dad's cracking all these funny jokes and I'm laughing and there's this real tension around, um, there's this inner tension for her and what that, what that looks like in, in theory and research is this dual process that we can sit in the life space and the grief space simultaneously and we can move between both. The other really important bereavement research that informs our practice as social workers when we become confident and familiar with it is all of the work around continuing bonds, which you know Liz mentioned before, around the memory making and keepsakes um, for babies that have died. Um, the research has caught up with that. In the 80s, you guys knew in practice that this was helpful and this was validating and this was going to support parents in their grief. But now we have these beautiful theories that um, back up what you guys were already doing. Um, and so applying that continuing bonds lens into the acute adult setting is just as important. And increasingly, the more that we offer, and particularly given COVID, the more people will take it up. Can I ask at this point, and Liz, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, what 
is memory making? What does that look like? And these ideas that Joe has just mentioned around holding space and companioning, what does that look like? So within the hospital setting, um, the memory making that often social workers do would be to um, incorporate in their conversations with families about the person. Um, and it might be that they want to do something with um, writing or it might be that they want to actually take a, a memento of the person. So let's say, for instance, in ICU, what is common is that we might, if it's been a sudden um, death, uh, we might actually take some hair um, we might do some handprints. This is especially with babies as well. We'll often do the hair taking, the foot um, and the handprints, the photography, um, which we've become a lot better at over the years. Um, uh, because And especially for, for babies, because often uh, they haven't got many photos or memories of, of the baby um, for all the obvious reasons. And sometimes we will bring that also into the adult space. But also, I think what I'm finding is that, and Joe, you'll probably be able to open this up a little more, is that social workers are becoming a lot more creative and incorporating what they're hearing in relation to the family and the relationship that they have with the person in how they might actually create some memories at the time. So, um, for instance, one of our ICU workers was telling me about letters that she was um, uh, encouraging um, her, the teenage sons of a, of a father who, had, who was still on life support but was going to be soon taken off, who died of a, of a heart attack, to write some letters, um, things that these children wanted to say to dad but didn't have the opportunity, those kind of things. I think that, Liz, you're only limited by your creativity when it comes to memory making. Exactly. And that being able to language the offer of making keepsakes with the families really important and not making it seem like a strange thing to do um, but also you know, some fabulous things I've heard about is um, in the oncology setting using plaster molds of, of hands being held um, thumbprints that are then put on imprint, imprinted onto jewellery one of the coolest things I've heard is um, someone's heart rate on e, in ICU on the heart rate monitor being printed out and then tattooed on the person's on their on the loved one's um, arm or whatever it was, but yeah, it's really only limited to to the social worker's creativity and the openness of the family to explore that and what's meaningful for them as a family. And that setting often, as you say, there might be a lifetime's worth of mementos and photographs of Nan, but you love Nan's knobbly old fingers with her rings dangling around her old um, arthritic digits, you know, and that might be something that's really meaningful for you. So you might want to take a photo of that, you know, holding a hand. Um, just coming back to your original question, Mim, one of the things I, I, that I find useful is really being very clear about the fact that loss is a very normal part of our life cycle. So being really comfortable in that. And that helps me to sit in the discomfort of bearing witness with um, a loved one or a family who are reacting to the impending, say, loss of their, their person, 
or or if someone's perhaps losing part of their body for instance it helps me to sit and listen primarily and not rush to fix it is it is challenging sometimes to sit with the high distress but we know that that's an important part of the process and um and and as joe said we've also got the research now to back up what we instinctively know as social workers because we've done it so many times if you work in, in especially in hospitals but to know that this is an important part of their processing I think there's something very comforting in some regards for the family to have someone sitting there going, and this is okay. And a big part of our role over the many years has been to say to other staff members, this is natural. What they're doing is absolutely natural, even though they look like they're bouncing off the walls. And, and I think that that has really assisted staff as well to know that there is no set way of reacting to a, a profound loss. We need to broaden it out. And I think social work plays a huge role in helping other health staff to get that. I think, Liz, also on that, as social work students and as social workers, when we're starting our career, if you're working in a hospital environment or in a healthcare setting, you really need to unpack that for yourself personally. 100%. In order, yeah, in order to be able to, you know, bring your A game in those situations. If you're dreadfully uncomfortable, if you've had so many experiences that in, in, in your own personal life that impact on you, you know, you really need to work through those in order to protect yourself in that situation when you're providing that end of life care um, and also be able to provide that, that social work service and intervention that's needed um, from the family. I think that's really key. And, you know, I even I can see my own um, journey and understanding with that has changed as I've matured and have become much more um, confident in, in navigating those existential questions around life and death and what that means to us. And can I say, Joe? I think there's a couple of ways in which we need to do that in an ongoing way. You know, I think to process our own losses is very important. And I would say all good social workers have done their own stuff, whether it be through counselling or therapy or whatever kind of therapeutic process. I think that's really valuable. But I also think that there's room in the supervision space for this. I think that it's absolutely essential that we bring into this what can sometimes be raised for us. Because you know, look, you know, you can be working in this loss and grief space, but sometimes there can be there can be an event or there can be a family that really hit you in a particular way. Take it to supervision. What is it about this particular loss or this particular family or this particular person that's resonated in a deep way for you? Because it might be that your loss, your own loss is being ignited again or it's reminding you of something. Um, and so, and I see that supervision legitimately is where you'd be talking about that. And then connecting it to your values as well, Liz. You know, if you sit in a position where you have been brought up and you um, value life, over everything else and time with someone it's going to be really hard for you to be working in an environment where death might be seen as not the worst option but for you as an individual and as a person functioning in your family unit and in your greater community um, it's going to be you know cause some real tension I think. Can I ask you both with 
all of these ideas, how has that changed our practice since COVID started? In the last two years, there's been such upheaval in healthcare and so many changes have come about. What has what has all of this meant? What has the pandemic meant for how we provide bereavement support now? What have you seen that's changed, if anything? Well, what I've seen is um, a broadening of practice. So I see that social workers are using IT a lot more and a lot more comfortably. So um, for instance, family conferences now that used to, you know, spend bloody forever trying to get entire family members into a physical space together. COVID has shown us that you can actually use IT in a really good way to keep families informed uh, and they don't have to try and get to the hospital at the same time as the doctor is able to do, to do a family update, for instance. Um, I've seen the challenges of um, social workers trying to connect family at end stage of life in the middle of a, a pandemic, and that has been incredibly challenging. But it's been the social workers that have really fought hard for some of our families to be, actually be able to spend time with it. And look, I've, I've seen practitioners who have, you know, done some marvellous things with their eyebrows as well, because of course, they're working from behind masks, um, are doing a lot of work in that space of linking the patient with, with family who are not able to get into the physical space. Um, uh, one of the beautiful work uh, that I saw in ICU was how the social worker humanised the COVID patient by actually finding out from the family all these really useful um, parts of them as a, a, that made them the person that they are and, and use that to talk to staff about who this person was to use things like um, playing favourite music in the room as, as, um, as they were lying there, to be talking about the family dog with the person. And I think that also helps staff too, because normally the staff would have the family member right beside the bed and able to actually talk about this stuff. I saw that the social worker was often the conduit in that space. Joe, what about you? So many things, but I, I guess things that have, have stood out for me have been that widening of practice. Phenomenal, right? Just so impressive, unbelievable. And the way that social workers have pivoted, I hate that word, but it's like almost overnight, right? Like fascinating. And then really just applying the same baseline skills and understanding, but flipping it on its head to make sure we can support the family by reassuring them we're providing a soothing and comforting environment for that person that they can't be with as possible. Things like psychosocial spiritual assessment, exactly that, Liz, getting to the to the nuts and bolts of that person and what's meaningful for them and what the family think would help in that situation given they can't be there. Interestingly, I want I have a question around the fatigue that social workers are carrying. Because there's something about being with someone physically and that, that physical connection with someone and holding space within a room, not on a device. And also some of the social workers I've spoken to have said that, you know, in the, in the rare, um, in some families, a minority, they have found the losing of a loved one via a device so unrealistic and so disconnected 
that it actually impacts further on the reality of the loss as opposed to being able to bear witness via a device. And I reckon there's probably cultural implications there, something to do with, you know, comfort uh, in using tech as a, as a uh, medium anyway. So that's really interesting. But I do think that fatigue piece is, is a really interesting kind of perspective for social workers because it takes more brain space, doesn't it? Like we have to we have to adapt and grow and learn and that can be really exhausting, let alone the fact that it's been an experience where we've shared the trauma of, of what's happening with COVID in general, that this was impacting on us as much as it's potentially impacting on on the on the people that we serve so that's a that's another challenge for me you know covid what we know about bereavement that when one person dies about four people are affected or have a bereavement experience loss and grief following that death what some recent studies in the states are showing is that because uh, of no visiting you know social distancing all of these implications that we've put in place to try and manage people's safety that it could be now as as, um, one death and nine people are adversely affected which is really significant Um, and given that there's you know been around 5,000 COVID deaths in Australia if four people are affected just after that death that's around 45 45,000 people experiencing what we would call a complicated or prolonged grief experience. So it might take a while, Joe, before that starts to kind of the ripple impact starts playing out as well in relation to the complications that have occurred as a result of losing someone in COVID pandemic. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All that stuff that we can that we would take for granted previously, you know, being able to kiss your mum without PPE, whatever it might be, you know, all of those sorts of things. Really, um, there, there will be a lag, but there's some amazing research coming out um, looking specifically at how bereaved people are bereaved in this, in this sort of two-year period, which is going to continue on, isn't it? That's right, that's right. So any, the lessons that we've learnt, I think, up until this point, we're just going to build on those lessons now and increase our knowledge and allow social work skills to be adapting as we go forward. If I had to choose my most favourite section of that conversation with Jo, Mim, it was when she described the dual process. Do you remember she said, it's sitting in the life space and grief space simultaneously. Oh, I I loved it. Oh, the phrasing of that is just beautiful, isn't it? And it's so descriptive. It's exactly what we do all the time in that end stage, right? Mm. Just perfect. And I think... I'll just leave it at that because she explains it so beautifully. Absolutely. I mean, and for any of our listeners still left wondering what does companioning mean, what does holding space mean, I mean, really, this is the episode, isn't it? You know, just any time you're out there in everyday conversation with people, just say, come on, I'm going to hold space now. (laughs) And now you know exactly what that means. I loved it. I love this conversation, Liz. I'm glad we had it. I'm glad we were able to get it out there for everyone. We would love to hear what you all think about it, so get in touch with us. There was a special guest in this episode, Liz. Indeed. I was going to say the other being that enjoyed the conversation was my fur 
grandchild, Lockie, my daughter's boxer. And, you know, I was so involved in that conversation, Mim. I didn't hear it at the time. It was only when we've re-listened to it, I've heard him, you know, really agreeing. I think he got quite passionate about it too in the background Lockie's a there. fan of Joe McElveen's. I what think can we so. say? Yeah. And um, if you want to send complaints in and get about the fact that we had a, a special guest in this episode by way of Lockie, uh, no. no. We'll take complaints about uh, the title fur grandchild or fur baby, but we won't take complaints and about ma- Lockie's presence and in, maybe, the, in the conversation. Maybe I can talk to him a little bit about the importance of silence. Look, I think there's some real development there for Lockie underway, which this episode could really help him with, right? If he's going to be a companion dog one day and believe and he me, will. it's part of the dream... If we could have companion animals in hospitals, now there's a conversation I'd love to have. But he's got some, he's got some development. Look, everyone's got work to do, Liz. What are we going to do? Sit here, criticise Lockie for that? Lifelong learning, my Lifelong friend. learning. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. We completely loved it. We'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Hello there. Liz Murphy here. Listen, have you ever wondered what it would be like to share a story of your practice on the Social Rec Stories podcast? Let me tell you, it is so easy to do. If you're interested, all you have to do is email us, socialworkstoriespodcast at gmail.com. That's socialworkstoriespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Then one of us will contact you back, we'll help you shape that story and record it, and that's it. Simple. So listen, why don't you email us today and we'll get back to you very soon and help you shape that fabulous story. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way, you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.